Hi there, it's Bean. Welcome to an all-new Great Moments in Weed history. First, let me say a big congratulations to our many listeners in Ohio, where voters just resoundingly approved cannabis legalization. That's right, we legalized it. We turn now to issue two, where Ohioans voted to legalize recreational marijuana. News 5's Jonathan Walsh, live in Columbus with supporters who helped get this passed. So, Jonathan, how are they feeling right now? Well, Rob, they feel great. Best of all, the new law allows for at-home cultivation of up to 12 plants on a property where at least two adults live or six plants if you're doing it loner, stoner style. And let me also add a sincere congratulations to those of you still stuck living someplace where weed is prohibited. Because this is your victory, too. Every new jurisdiction that stops arresting people for choosing to embrace this plant brings us one step closer to a world where all of us are free to get high in peace. In this Weeds episode, we're going to meet a freedom fighter who actually first faced arrest in Ohio in 1995 while driving through the state with 30 pounds of pot marked not for sale, medical use only. It would turn out to be just one of several arrests and incarcerations Todd McCormick would have to suffer in his long cannabis career. But don't worry, as you're about to hear, he's landed in a beautiful place. What's most incredible about Todd's journey with weed is that it started when he was just a kid whose mother handed him a lit joint on the way home from chemotherapy. As a survivor of pediatric cancer, he has never stopped working to share that same healing plant with others. Along the way, he's advocated alongside legends of the cannabis movement like Jack Herrer, Brownie Mary, and Dennis Perone, while writing an influential book about cultivation and going on to produce the breakthrough documentaries, The Union, The Business Behind Getting High, and The Culture High. Todd also forged lasting, weedy friendships with everyone from Tommy Chong and Woody Harrelson to Bill Maher and Hugh Hefner. But before we dig into my interview with Todd, I want to say thanks as always to everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon. You can join us at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com and find out about all the benefits of signing up, which include getting the video version of this podcast. You see me waving at you. Secret sessions every week where I sit down and get lit with members of our online Patreon community, all kinds of other bonuses. And you can join us for as little as a dollar. And if you want to throw in a little bit more than a dollar, you can get a signed copy of my book, how to smoke pot properly and i will inscribe it to you or to a friend or to a loved one and if you order by early december i will make sure it goes right out and arrives in time for the holidays so please 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 check us out at great moments in weed history.com and subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And of course, if you can recommend this show to a friend the next time you're getting lit with the homies or the homets or the non-binary home people, 
Uh, <laughs> if you're passing weed to the left, along with that joint, say, hey, you should check out this podcast, Great Moments in Weed History. Help us gain some new listeners. Now, let's get into my interview with Todd McCormick, someone I've personally known for many years and with whom I have shared some epic sessions over those years, uh, particularly as fellow judges at the annual Emerald Cup. But what is great about hosting this podcast is that I got to really sit down with Todd for the first time and hear his story from start to finish. It is a wild ride. It is going to take you through an entire era of cannabis history and activism. There are, as we alluded to, some rough stretches in that road, but it's a beautiful journey and it lands in a very, very happy place for Todd and for all of us. So I got this joint I'm about to uh, spark up as we dig in, but uh, wait, I'm hearing that you, yes, you, listener, the person hearing me right now is not as lit as you would like to be. And you are thinking to yourself, 30 pounds of pot, uh, Woody Harrelson, uh, this is going to be a, 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 maybe a two-joint show, and I don't even have one joint ready to light up. Well, all you got to do is chill, as always. Easy solution. Just hit pause on your podcast device, whatever is spewing these sounds into your ears, and you can use that time to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to pack a bong or to indabulate a dab or to ingest as many edibles as you think it is wise to ingest or maybe do all of the above, whatever it takes you to be where you want to be, because when you're ready and you hit on pause, I can promise you that we will all be ready for another great moment in weed history. Hey, Todd, welcome. It is a honor. Uh, to talk with you here on Great Moments in Weed History. Thanks for having me on. We do like to start with the origin story here with our guests. So take me there. When did this plant first come into your life? It was when I had cancer as a child and my mother read in Good Housekeeping that they were using cannabis with cancer patients. So she talked to my pediatrician. I had had tumors nine times between ages two and 10. He said my mom had nothing to lose. So on the way home from a radiation and chemotherapy session, she actually um, handed me a joint, told me to sip it like it was a straw. And on the way home that day, I hit the joint. And by the time we got home about 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, I was hungry. I was not nauseous. My mom was a little you know, nervous of like, what did she do? And uh, she called my doctor and told him I was hungry and she was making me sauteed spinach. And he was like, that's great. And then the next day, they didn't give me any cannabis. She did not give me a joint. I got home. I was, you know, nauseous. I was, you know, had that kill me now vibe. 
And she came upstairs and gave me another joint. And uh, that's when I really realized the profound effect cannabis can have when you're going through something so extreme. And that is what kind of caused me to become such an advocate later in life. What year are we talking roughly here? I turned nine in uh, October of 79. And uh, I was dealing with chemotherapy and radiation, uh, basically a lot of that year. Wow. This is 15 years before there were really any laws in place anywhere to protect even patients with cancer and the most serious conditions. Was this outside of your mom's wheelhouse? Uh, was she a, a hippie who, who who knew about weed? Or was this uh, uh, coming out of a kind of desperation of trying to care for you? Definitely a combination of both. Uh you know, starting off in 72, I had tumors in my spine and my first five vertebrae effused. Then I had three more in my skull, two more in my right ear. I had two in my left hip. I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. And then I got it between my left lung and my heart. That's when my mom started smoking cannabis with me. But she was already a hippie that smoked cannabis. And she was basically a like a, I call her a parlor dealer. My mom sold pot to her friends because in the 70s, I was kind of a welfare trap. I had a pre-existing medical condition and nobody wanted to hire her to cover my medical bills. And she had to be home with me or taking me to the hospital. And then on top of that, my little brother who was born in 74 was Down syndrome. So my mother was kind of trapped financially. And because she couldn't get a job, you know, nobody wanted to hire her. She had these two sick kids. She sold pot. And fortunately, when she was sitting there reading in Good Housekeeping that it was helping people, she was very open-minded to trying it because she had had a lot of personal experience with cannabis and she was not afraid of it. So she knew that it wouldn't hurt me, but she wasn't sure if it would help me. Yeah, she's a hippie, but it was my Western medicine doctors that saved my life. And she knew that. So she went with them and they were really cool with it. Going into the hospital, there was a place on the roof that we would smoke together. I remember standing on the rocks on the roof. It was really weird next to like air conditioning, like ducks and shit, smoking pot with my mom. <laughs> and then uh, I would go back in and they'd go through radiation or chemotherapy and it helped me a lot. And my, my doctors wanted to observe what was happening because, you know, they just wanted to help me. I don't think they had any... Uh, bad attitude towards the healing effects of cannabis or marijuana at the time. But it was 1979 and it was really early on. Did you have to keep this secret uh, to anyone at any time, you know, as it was helping you? And what was that like for you? You know, it's funny because at the time my mom had like easy widers. And I remember one day she held up a pack of papers. She goes, what are these? I said, they're easy widers. She said, no, you don't know what they are and you've never seen them before. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, Jesus Christ, mom. And then she held up a bong. She said, what's this? I said, it's a bong. She said, no, you don't know what it is and you've never seen it before. And I was like, oh, okay. And she explained to me that like the powers that be would come and take me away. And I would never see my mom again if they found out that she was giving me a drug like marijuana. I was sworn to secrecy and it created a bit of a loyal bond between me and my mom and the rest of the world because she was very upfront with what was going on around us. And she was very like honest about the problems that we'd face if we were honest about using marijuana. So unfortunately, I was afraid to, you know, say pot in school, write a pot leaf on my my notepad. I would I did nothing to try to bring attention to the fact that I was a secret stoner. Wow. And so here's this plant that is not just 
helping you heal through, you know, what sounds like a very prolonged, very painful, and probably very life-threatening medical situation that lasted for years, as well as providing a financial underpinning for your mom to ethically bring in income for your family while still being able to provide care for you. A parlor dealer. Like a living room dealer. Yeah. Yeah, that she can run out of her home and and yet you see uh, that you've got to keep this secret and you see that the world is so judgmental of this plant that they would take you away from your loving mother because of this. How did that inform your approach to activism and when did you yourself as an individual say it's time for me to speak out about this there's two parts to that i was a little kid nine years old at the time i had hair on my head i had color in my skin i was dealing with the the radiation and chemo fairly decently and there was a moment where one of my pediatricians asked me to talk to another child that was going through similar treatments on the walk over to this kid, I was holding the doctor's hand. I remember it was like much taller than me. And I said, uh, you want me to lie about using marijuana, right? And he said, uh, I never told you to lie. And I said, well, you don't want me to tell them that I'm using marijuana, right? And if we don't tell them, there isn't that kind of lying. And he looked at me and he said, okay, this isn't going to work. And he walked me back to my mom. And my mom was sitting in a hospital room, like waiting for me. And she, I remember her reaction when I walked into the room with the doctor is she said, wow, that was quick. And I said, yeah, he wants me to lie. He says, I never told you to lie. I said, you don't want me to tell him I'm using marijuana, which is in fact lying. And my mom just looked like, oh, Jesus. And uh, he was like, I don't think this is going to work. And my mom's like, I understand. And uh, then we left. And on the way home, I was like, why does he want me to lie? And that's kind of when the conversation kind of started taking place of like how screwed up things really were. And I got far enough, close enough to the like children's playroom where they had like toys where they'd make us kids hang out while they were whatever, you know, dealing with our medical shit. And um, I saw the kid through the door and then he pulled me away and we went the other way. And that always hung on me because a lot of the kids that were in the cancer therapy were pale and bald. And I wasn't. And, you know, granted, there's some genetics involved with losing your hair or not losing your hair during chemo. But I was a little kid and I looked very different from the other kids. And it it just stuck with me. Was there an element of, of pleasure to smoking weed as well? Did you feel that you were participating in weed culture along with everyone else in addition to the medicinal aspects of it? And, and how did that develop for you? I made it through uh, the tumors. My mom would give me pot. And one day I had gotten like a 20 bag from her and I rolled a couple joints and I split what I had left. I took the small uh, bag with me. I just got to say, you know, for our younger listeners, in- inflation, you know, a 20 bag went a lot further back in the day. It was an eighth. It, it was <laughs> roughly, roughly an eighth of weed because at the time a quarter ounce was 40 bucks. An ounce was like 90 bucks if you bought an ounce. And, you know, it was, it was 1982. I went and I was, you know, chasing trails with my friends on my dirt bike and uh, they stopped to smoke some marijuana. And they were all older than me by like a lot. And uh, they, I remember John showed me this bag of marijuana and it was brown and I'd never seen brown marijuana before. And he was like, what do you know about marijuana, McCormick? And I was like, why is it brown? 
And he was like, <laughs> it comes brown. And I remember being like, it don't grow brown. And he was like, what do you know? And I was like, look. And I went to my motorcycle and I grabbed a joint that I'd rolled. It was kind of fat. And I grabbed my little bag of weed, which was technically bigger than his bag of weed because his was like compressed brown pot and mine was like fluffy green buds from like a greenhouse in Vermont from like from my mom he saw that and was just blown away and I lit the joint and I was passing it around to my friends and they were all coughing their heads off and one of my tall friends Mark hit the joint and as soon as he started coughing and he blew it out he goes wow that's what it's supposed to feel like and it was really (laughs) funny and then uh my friend John looked at my bag he said will you sell me this I said yeah and uh, how much will you give me, though? Because I wasn't sure. I pretty much knew that my mom's friends paid less than my friends for pot. So I was like, what's it worth to you? And he said, if I give you $20 for it, will you think I'm ripping you off? And I said, no, no, that's cool. Then my tall friend, Mark, was like, can I get one, too? And I had another bag at home. And I was like, yes. I made $40, dude, that day. And let me explain. Gas was maybe 80 cents a gallon in that in 1982. Like, $40 was a ton of money, man. Like, And uh, I went back to my mom. And I was like, hey, can I get another bag of pot? And she was like, uh... I really can't give you bags of pot every day. You're going to have to learn how to make them last. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, Well, could I just buy it? And she was like, oh, shit. And (laughs) And I knew at that point she was like, oh, man. So, see, the problem was is when I was like 10 and 11, her friends would call and say, hey, Todd, is your mom home? I'd say no. They'd call, well, can I come over anyway? I'd say, "Uh, yeah, but grandma's home, so come to the back door. And they'd say, okay. So they come to the back door and they'd slip me 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 40 bucks, and I would disappear. And then they would like talk with my grandma. And then when she would turn around, I'd slip them back the bag. And then they would say, okay, well, tell Ann I was here, you know, my mom's name. And they would split. And uh, my mom had like little sandwich bags that would have 10 bags, 20 bags and 40 bags. That's how it worked. So when I was 12, I was already kind of seasoned in this, if you get it. And uh so I remember jumping the fence to, to run over to my friend Mark's place to sell him a bag of weed. And uh, it was the start of the rest of my life in all reality, because I became known through my teens as like the neighborhood pot dealer. I had really good pot and uh, I was always very honest and very fair with people. And uh, I sold weed pretty much you know, for a very long time after that. I mean, all through my teens, I sold cannabis and then what was a pivotal moment for me is when I was 13, I was selling a bag of pot to my friend's older brother, Fred. He was like a laborer, a carpenter, and he built this white box in his living room where a television would normally be. And it had like white doors and he painted all the wood before he put it together. And when you open the doors, he had fluorescent lights, a little like a bench that he built, and he had pot plants growing. And I had never seen this before, man. I mean, this was... This was the color moment in The Wizard of Oz for me. I was just blown away. My life would never be the same after seeing this. And he shows me this Mel Frank at Rosenthal Grow book and says he bought it up at Lincoln Mall. And I was like, I'll trade you the bag for the book. And he was like, no, I need the book. I was like, oh, well, I need the money. Go buy the go buy another one. If you got the money for the bag, go buy another book. And he was like, oh, so he gave me the book. I went home. 
I cleaned out my closet immediately. I went and got the fluorescent lights from the basement. They were my grandmother's. I got the uh, ropes and pulleys. Uh, those were my grandmother's. Those were her laundry lines. I found pots. I found soil. I found a watering can. I snatched her timer from the pitcher window because she had a timer in the front window. I put together my grow room. I had seeds because I was a weed dealer. I planted seeds. I followed all the instructions in the book. And it worked. It worked really, really, really well. And for a year, I grew cannabis in my closet and my grandmother had no clue. But one day, my grandmother comes up to wake me up for school and my closet is glowing. And it's like 1984. E.T. is selling M&Ms from a glowing closet. She literally screams, touches me to wake me up and the closet turns off because it's on a timer. So she loses her shit. She pushes me towards the closet. Who's in your closet? Someone's in your closet. I said, no one's in my closet, Grandma. <laughs> and I slide open the door, and I lean down, and I turn the timer, which clicks. She heard the click, and she said, hey, that's my timer. And then the fluorescent lights start going flick, 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 and come on. She looks up. She's only four foot 11. She says, those are my lights. And then she looks down, she goes, those are my pots. That's my watering can. And then she realizes there is a pot six foot tall. The whole closet is green. She was like, how long have you been doing this? I said, about a year. So we went downstairs and she was like pretty hot with me. And uh, I was like, I had to go to school. And I was like, don't, please promise you won't mess with my plant. Because, you know, she was like, mm, okay, we'll talk about it when you get home. So I came home from school. And I, I meet her in the kitchen and uh, she says, you know, I think they'd be better off in the basement. I said, what? <laughs> you know, because it had taller ceilings because my attic, like I was in an attic bedroom with like slanted ceilings. And uh, she said, yeah, why don't you grab a pallet, put it on the concrete so they don't get too cold. You can hang some of my old drapes up around it and, you know, maybe hang one of your fans uh, up in the rafters. And she goes, and I'll, I'll water them when I do laundry. I was fucking blown away. You were uh, part of a three-generation vertically integrated cottage industry of uh, <laughs> <laughs> disseminating this plant from cultivation to uh, distribution. I never got in trouble for selling weed or growing weed up until I became an activist. What ended my, my teenage years is I got cancer or t another tumor in my left arm, and I went from not having it for about five years between ages um, like nine, 10 to about 15, 16. And I was a little to say uh, depressed because I felt like, oh shit, this is all gonna repeat again. And I started eating a lot of acid. And I, uh, I feel that it was a very psychologically beneficial experience because it gave me the ability to rationalize everything I was going through and see the silver lining in the dark cloud. And it caused me to feel very optimistic about my future, almost like, I know this sounds like a weird thing to say, but when you realize that your life is only so long, it unlocks and you don't feel as constrained, you don't feel as depressed, you feel like, shit, the clock is ticking and I better make the most of this. I ended up leaving Rhode Island, moving across the country alone, I uh, moved to San Diego, and that's where I first discovered The Emperor Wears No Clothes uh, from a smoke shop on Garnet Ave. And when I read the book, I shot right up to Jack's house. I literally called the number on the back, talked to some girl named Summer. She told me that we were doing the initiative and asked if I'd volunteer to help, which meant stand outside of supermarkets and concerts and uh, and table and teach people about cannabis and try to get them to sign our initiative. 
So I drove up there to meet Jack. I had a cannabis collection at the time of different varieties. And I brought a little duffel bag full of weed. And when I met Jack, he was arrogant. And uh, he said, oh, I want to smoke the best pot you've ever smoked in your life. And I said, sure. So uh, we went in the back room and he showed me some pot from Richard Davis, who I'm sure you remember. Richard used to grow this really good Hindu Kush up in Mendocino. And he was close friends with Jack. I liked it. And then I opened my bag, which was mostly indoor. And I started showing him all these different types of pot. And knowing Jack now, uh, he just wanted to smoke all my weed, most likely. But, <laughs> but this is he, the classic uh, gunslinger uh, to the to the hot young gun move of uh, yeah. Let me he see showed your me draw. a six shooter. <laughs> yeah, I pull out a machine gun, and uh, and he was just like, "Are you a cop?" I was like, "The fuck are you talking about? Am I a cop?" I was like, "Don't you ever say that to me." And he was like, "Oh, sorry." And uh, and I showed him the scar on the back of my neck, and I started explaining to him that I had had tumors so many times. And he was like, "Holy shit!" We went from the hemp office, which is where we were, to across to his apartment as it got late. And then um, Jack and I literally sat up and all night long at the kitchen table till sunrise, uh, smoking my weed and reading the Song of Solomon. I, I just, I want to interject for a moment. It just, uh, anybody who's sort of entering uh, what's now known as the cannabis space, and we used to call the weed movement and still do. I'm sorry if your intro is a business conference of people uh, with spreadsheets and PowerPoints and, and not, uh, a bearded gentleman getting high with you till sunrise and pouring through ancient texts for esoteric messages about plant medicine and the future of humanity. So there's an episode of this program about Jack Herrer that you can go back and listen to. And you can listen to any number of episodes of people who were inspired by him personally or through his book to take up this cause. And, you know, that's how a movement grows. I took an oath with Jack when I was much younger that I would fight for legalization until I was either 84 years old it was legal or I was dead. And that was the options, the three options I had. <laughs> 84 legal or dead, you don't get to give up. I think that we've accomplished what he set out to accomplish. In 2010, when Jack passed away, his publisher contacted me and said, hey, you're the one that has to put together the 12th edition, the one with the memorials in it and everything to him, because I was an editor of his book from the day we met until the day he passed, really. And I learned a lot from him. And uh, But he introduced me to Dennis Perone. I went up and met Dennis at the Buyers Club, San Francisco Buyers Club, and I was blown away at uh, what he was doing. I was absolutely stunned. So I felt as if I could not run a Buyers Club in San Diego because it is extremely conservative. And I felt like I could do a compassion club where I gave away cannabis uh, for free. Uh, so I redistributed, donated cannabis to people that needed it. And I started that in 1995. And I was raided a couple months later. This was a year before Prop 215 passed in California. And of course, raids on compliant businesses continued after that law was passed. But you opened this Compassion Club uh, as an act of civil disobedience. Also, people can go back and listen to our episodes of this program about Dennis Perone uh, and Brownie Mary, two separate episodes that uh, and and the episode about Wham that that cover 
um, this period of time from from different perspectives. But but we want to follow your story. So sure. um, there is no real law protecting what you do. No. Um, tell me about you know the, how you opened, how you served people, and w- what happened the first time you uh, did get raided. At the time I started this, there was only really Dennis and John in San Francisco, Valerie and her husband Mike in Santa Cruz with what became Wham. And uh, me in San Diego with the San Diego Compassion Club, that there were only the three of us distributing cannabis. For me personally, being with Jack, I would encounter people that were sick, that had cancer, that had AIDS, that had HIV. And I'd give them my pot because I had access to a lot of cannabis and they didn't. At the time, I mean, I'm not trying to brag, but I was selling weed and um, I was making a lot of money every week. And it didn't impact me to give away pot. I, I never ran out of pot and I never ran out of money. I always felt that if I stopped being generous with cannabis, cannabis would stop being generous with me. It's really wild we're doing this the day after Ohio legalizes because my first arrest was July 18th, 1995, traveling across Ohio. I had 30 pounds of pot marked, not for sale, medical use only, stickers I got from Dennis Perone and this SF Buyers Club. And I was going to Rhode Island to start another buyer's club. Then I got busted in Ohio. And when I got busted, they went and raided the San Diego Compassion Club. And I think it was all tied together in all reality. My friends were there running the Compassion Club and they were being detained. So I got off the phone. I called my mom. I told my mom to call San Diego Normal, Diane Anshell at the time. She called the local media and the media who had already interviewed me prior and knew the house came over to basically record the bust. Well, the DEA didn't want to deal with that. So they basically, they stole a bunch of my books. They took some pot, the grow equipment that was there and the media got there and they started recording it and the DEA left. They just left. What happened really, which got the whole case dismissed is a reporter from the Toledo Blade, Margie Farnham, if I remember right, she looked into it and she started sitting in on my cases. In front of the judge, when I was being arraigned, the prosecutor was saying I was basically a drug growing like heathen that had a house and was rich in California. And I was like, he was describing the Compassion Club. So I was pretty fidgety and I was in chains. I had my arms locked in chains to my hips. And the judge saw this, yeah. And uh, he said, Mr. McCormick, do you have something to say? I said, yes, Your Honor, I do. And I stood up and I said, permission to address the court? And he said, yes. So at the time, this sounds weird, but I was into using multicolored paper for my handouts because when I would table, people would come over and they would judge the handouts by like the layout, you know? So if I put them down in blue and yellow and red and green, people would just take one of each color and go read them later. This was the internet. By the way, younger listeners, this is uh, what we had to go through to disseminate any kind of accurate information. That's right. So we used to photocopy Jack's book all night. We would be at Kinko's all night, and then we would be tabling at colleges and concerts and supermarkets, wherever we could set up. We would be teaching people about cannabis as they walked by. We would have cannabis shirts on and cannabis pants and cannabis backpacks trying to convince people that they're made out of marijuana. They'd think we were crazy. That was how this all started. It it sounds like you were able to beat this case. Uh, How did that play out? What happened exactly is USA Today wrote an editorial about me. 
um, saying that Todd McCormick left his house to help the seriously ill. The only problem is the help he intended to deliver is illegal. And then it ended its editorial saying sick people deserve help, not a ticket to jail, which is pretty profound. When I had the interaction with the judge and I told him I had an international prescription for cannabis and that it superseded federal law, which superseded state law, he was open minded. And he said, if you can get an American doctor to validate your Dutch physician's prescription, I'll let you have your cannabis while you're incarcerated, which was fucking in incredible. And um, they all wrote to the judge and sent him these letters, Harvard, Mount Sinai and City University of New York and uh, California Medical Association. And the judge kind of didn't know what to do. He lowered my bond from 150 grand to two grand. USA Today wrote an editorial about me on Monday. And then all of ABC, CBS and, and NBC showed up on Tuesday wanting to interview me. There were like media trucks outside of the of the little jail in, in Bryan, Ohio. It was weird because the, the judge was saying he was going to let me smoke pot and the facility was a non-smoking facility. And the warden was saying no one's going to smoke anything in my facility. And one of the reporters said, oh, so you're willing to be held in contempt of court? The warden said, what do you mean? And he says, well, you're willing to defy a judge's court order and deny this man is medicine he said that's not what i said he said that is what you said back to you and that's how they cut and he was just like i got thrown in the hole uh because he wasn't too happy with me and then um they lowered my bond and they released me with the condition that you got to leave the state get the hell out of here we're gonna have you come back and we'll dismiss this at a later date for some reason that's a technicality because we don't want to deal with your politics i went back to holland with the 1995 cannabis cup crew and ended up living there for over a year because I was just waiting for the judge to make his decision on if he was going to prosecute me or not. And if he was, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I would have went back and fought the case. But he didn't. And I was offered a job as editor-in-chief of an English uh, cannabis magazine called Hemp Life. So I stayed for over a year and I grew pot at a place called Positronics. Being able to walk into a coffee shop and like talk to people from Spain, England, Italy, Germany, like and not feel that you could had to hide like the fact that you were smoking cannabis was an incredible feeling of liberation. And I can't really ex express that enough to go from the incredibly oppressive America to the, oh my God, I can walk up to a cop with a joint in my hand and ask directions to the next coffee shop was like, wow, this is not anything I want to go away from, except they have something called winter. <laughs> and I am really allergic to winter. I really loved Holland. If it was tropical, I probably would have never left in all reality because it was just so cool. But when I was there and I was doing my magazine, I met a liaison for a gentleman named Peter McWilliams, a multimillionaire author who had recently gotten diagnosed with cancer and AIDS in March of 96. His assistant was over there looking for a cannabis expert because Peter was going to write a book about medical cannabis. He sent him my magazine. I got a call and I got asked to come back for a meeting with Peter. And it was one of those like Hollywood stories because I, I had never lived in LA before other than to visit Jack. That was my only time in LA. And when I got there and met Peter, he offered me like 10 grand and 8% of my book. And I said, no, I don't even know what you do at 10 grand in LA. What is that like, you know, a month's rent here? Like, that's a joke. So he was like, hmm, come back in a month when I have more money and we'll renegotiate. I said, okay. And he lent me his Lexus of all things and let me go like see my friends and visit California. And I came back in a few weeks. I had picked up pot from all over, you know, I had a hockey bag full of weed and 
In that time, I had mailed back some packages from Amsterdam as he requested. Some of it had hash and grass for him. I sent my seed collection home. And when he was sitting there with me and I started opening it up and putting all the bags of seeds on the table, he asked me if he could look at a bag of seeds. I said, sure. And he's like looking at this bag and it said 1,000 on the bag, like a thousand count seeds. And he said, uh, how much is a seed worth? I said, oh, five, 10 bucks. And he said, this baggie's worth 10 grand. I said, yeah, yeah. And I had a pile of them in front of me. He said, how many do you got there? I said, I don't know, like 50, 60. And he goes, no wonder you, like, cause then he's realizing I'm sitting in front of half a million dollars of seeds. And uh, he said, no wonder you said no to my money. And um, he said, if I gave you like 250 grand, would you stay in LA and work on a book, a website and a movie and let me like send you out to do live speaking about cannabis as a medicine and growing it? And I said, yeah. And he literally in that moment, he was wearing a robe. He had a bird running around on his shoulder, was shitting on him and a little parakeet. <laughs> He had bedhead for days because he just didn't give a shit. He was wearing shower slippers. And he looks at my girlfriend at the time and says, you still have the keys in my car? She said, yeah. He said, let's get him to the bank before he changes his mind. And literally, <laughs> we went, we shook hands, left everything right there on the table. And uh, we went down to Wells Fargo. And I mean, he walks into this bank wearing a white robe, shower shoes, head messed up, and bird shit on his shoulder. And the manager runs over to him and says, Mr. McWilliams, you look great. <laughs> so, Come on. So, I'm not even kidding, man. I'm not so, even kidding. Suffice it to say, venture capital in the uh, cannabis industry used to used to have a, a different flavor. A different look. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, I started looking for homes, and that's how I found this five-storied castle-styled mansion on a hill in Bel Air. It was on Stone Canyon, no less, so I had to go check it out. I had the money, so I had all the seeds, so I just started planting a lot of plants. We had just passed Proposition 215. Dennis Perone was running for governor. We had Dennis's gubernatorial party at my house. Um, Jack was there all the time, and I started meeting my neighbors. I met Woody Harrelson's family while he was on a movie and then uh, he came back from his movie and then he came over and hung out with me and we hit it off. We stayed up all night smoking weed and um, we became best friends. That's how I met Larry Flint in my living room as well. Bill Maher, a whole lot of these people. They were just my neighbors, as crazy as it might sound. And then um, I got turned in a week before by unfortunately the LA Buyers Club because Jack was so proud of me that he couldn't stop talking about me and he was down at the LA Buyers Club selling them cannabis and telling them Todd, 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 Todd Mansion, Todd Hydroponics, Todd's gonna give away pot, Todd Medical Marijuana. So they contacted me and said, hey, will you sell us clones? And I said, no. I said, I don't think anything in 215 allows for distribution. So I'm, I had already went and talked to a lawyer and said, how can I do this legally? And he said, don't sell pot. The interstate and intrastate are completely different. And if you don't break interstate laws, you won't have federal jurisdiction over you. So just don't sell the pot and you should be fine, which wasn't a problem because I had all this money. Unfortunately, Scott Emler, who's now dead, was running the LA Buyers Club. When I said no to him and I wouldn't sell him the clones, he turned me into the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department. And the West Hollywood Sheriff's Department contacted the DEA and then, you know, five days later, I got raided at the Bel Air Castle. Initially, my bond was a million dollars. I got busted with 4,116 cannabis plants at my house at that time. But a lot of it was just 
because I was in the process of sex and selection, I know this sounds crazy, but most all of them would have been thrown away because like I would plant a hundred seeds looking for one. So I'd have to grow all 100. I would have to basically judge all 100 and then decide which is the best example out of that particular batch, throw away 99 of them. So my plant counts would go up and then down. It was amazing. And then I got busted. Fortunately, uh, Woody has a really big heart and uh, he found out I got busted and he sent his assistant to bail me out of jail. Larry Flint found out I got busted and sent his attorneys to go defend me. Then when Woody came home, I remember telling him, you know, man, I can't believe you posted a half a million dollars for me. And he looked at me, he goes, it was a half a million dollars. I said, yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I was told it was a million. And I said, you were going to bail me out for a million dollars. And he gave me a hug. He said, I was going to bail you out for anything. Todd, I wasn't going to leave you in there. And I was like, I would, I just started crying. I was just like, dude, he stopped smoking weed with me from when I got out of jail until mid September. Um, because he wanted to like stand in solidarity with me because I wasn't allowed to smoke cannabis when I got out on bond. I get a call from him. He was on set for High Low Country and it was September of 97. And he calls me, says, hey, there's only two people in the world I want to get high with right now. You know, you and Willie Nelson. And Willie just showed up on set. <laughs> Will you think any less of me if I fall off the wagon? I said, <laughs> I said, no, no, man, I won't. This is what we call accountability partners. Dude, it was uh, good. It, 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 nowadays, uh, it, it, <laughs> pertaining to anything. And then this is what we call, I think, the ultimate hall pass. Uh, is Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is what I said to him. I said, yeah, man, you can smoke, but you got to do me a favor. Every time he passes it to you, take two hits. One for you, one for me. He said, okay, no problem. Well, half hour later, I get a call on speakerphone and... What are you saying? I can't do it, man. I can't do it. And Willie Nelson's in the background going, he's a lightweight now, Todd. He's a lightweight. Can't smoke anymore. And he's like, I can't keep taking two hits, man. I'm not going to be able to go back to work. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I was so, dying. This is, mini, this is a mini genre uh, unto itself of people's stories and even songs uh, about trying to smoke one-to-one. With Willie now, never mind two puff, to one. You know, there's that never smoking with Willie again, and we we had a whole episode of this show about uh, <laughs> those different stories, uh, and now you have somebody who is coming off of significant tolerance break, who is trying to smoke two to one with Willie Nelson and is at work <laughs> and <laughs> expected so to return to work. Uh, so yeah, that's intense. So it gets heavy, man. So, so he goes back to smoking weed in September. I don't, he comes home in December and he walks up to me with a bag of Kush and says, Hey man, I miss your joints. Will you roll me a joint? I said, Oh man, come on. You know, what the fuck? I'm not, I'm not able to smoke. You're going to you know, roll you a joint. And he says, you're really not smoking? I said, I gave you my word, man. He says, um, can I ask you this? I said, what? He says, uh, why, if, 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 it, if I didn't care and, you, and it was your money, you know, you know, there's a half a million dollars riding on me not smoking, what would you do? I said, I'd smoke weed. And he handed me the bag and he says, Todd, I don't give a shit about the money. Everyone in the room started crying and I rolled a few fatties and started smoking weed again. You know, I say this, like you never want to get busted and find out you don't have friends, you know, because a lot of times when you get busted, you find out 
that people aren't there for you. But when I got busted, there was this immense amount of support around me. For instance, one night went to a blues traveler concert and um, we were standing on stage and uh, Bill Maher was on stage. And, um, and he asked Woody to be on Politically Incorrect. Woody said, no, man, why don't you have him on? He has something to say. And he said, who's he? And he looks over his shoulder and he says, the marijuana guy? Come on, Woody, what are you trying to do to me? Get my show canceled? And, uh, and Woody was just like, what? You can't, if you can't talk about reality, why are you asking me to be on? And he goes, how about if I had you both on? Would you do it if he did it? And Woody looked at me, he goes, you want to do it? And I said, it's not up to me, man. You know, it's not up to me. He goes, I'll only do it for, with you if you agree to this. If somebody's talking, I'll interrupt them. You interrupt me and say something smart. <laughs> that's hilarious so uh we end up going and doing it on fucking 420 1998 at that point bill started bringing me all over the place we were out one night and we ran into hugh hefner and hugh had seen me on the news all the time and he grabbed me by my arm and he started telling me about Keith Strope and how he founded normal with keith it was his buddy that started normal in 1970 and I was listening to him and I said, listen, I know Keith really well. We're friends. And, uh, and I know all about your history and it's, I'm really honored to meet you. And um, he said, well, why don't you ever come to the mansion? I said, well, I've never been invited. And he was like, well, you're invited now. And he was like, I'm going to have Keith fly out here and we'll have dinner together. And Bill was like, you know, I've introduced him to a lot of guys and usually he won't talk to them. He goes, I've never seen him engage with anybody like he's talked to you. Because we stood there and talked for like 10 minutes. Then... I told Bill, I got invited to dinner. He was like, get the fuck out of here. And then, so then I go to dinner. We were in the backyard getting high. And uh, Hef asked me at that point, can you get me some pot? And I mean, it's fucked up because I'm on pro, I'm on pre-trial. I'm on half a million dollar pot. And he's like, can you score me some weed? And like, how do you say no to Hugh Hefner? So I just said, sure. I said, how do I get a hold of you? He's just called the mansion and asked for me. I said, that works? He said, it works for you. And it was just really funny, but Hef was really, really into legalization. And, and it was interesting because I asked him, when did you start using cannabis? And he said, you know, it was in the late 50s when I met the Beats. Alan Ginsberg and those guys turned him on to marijuana. The last party I spent at the Playboy Mansion before I went to prison was um, 1999. And, uh, you know, I took a picture with Hef. I didn't have the heart to tell him that I had to self-surrender to prison on January 3rd. Uh, 2000 because I just didn't want to ruin his evening. You know, I go from Friday night, New Year's Eve, you know, 2000 to Monday morning, having to go to prison Monday afternoon and uh, talk about a shift. He was a nice, nice guy. And then when I got out of prison, I had the great opportunity of using his Playboy Mansion to host parties for the Marijuana Policy Project to raise money and awareness for legalization. And what was one of the high points of that is in 2007, Bill Maher accepted an award for me. Joe Rogan was my MC. Blues Traveler played for me. They We put him on top of the grotto. And DJ Pooh, who made the movie Friday, was one of my best friends, he DJed for me. I was standing with Bill watching Blues Traveler play on top of the grotto. And I, I like elbowed him. I said, do you remember where we met? And he looks at me and he looks at Blues Traveler and he goes, it was a Blues Traveler concert, wasn't it? And I said, yeah. And, and he looks at me and he goes, wow, Todd, he goes, you've come a long way. Because when I met him, I was being prosecuted. And if you tapped me on the shoulder in 97 and said, hey, don't sweat this. Ten years from now, you and Bill will be standing 
at the Playboy Mansion watching the same band play on top of the grotto so you can raise money for legalization, I would have thought, you're high as fuck. If it was me, you would have been correct. Yes. <laughs> I, I was I was high as fuck for most of the mid-90s. But um, yeah, that's a beautiful arc of that story. And, you know, a couple of things that occur to me along the way is you talk about that support that you had. This community and this movement of weed people, we've taken our lumps and we've had too many people like yourself pay too much of a cost, whether it is in terms of loss of freedom, uh, incarceration, of arrest, of having, uh, you know, families torn apart. Like people sometimes think that the war on uh, drugs and the war on cannabis is just about maybe getting arrested, but it has all of these rippling effects. Um, and there's nothing good about that. But there's everything beautiful about how that has engendered a sense of mutual support among cannabis activists and cannabis people. And, um, you know, particularly how you described your interactions with Woody Harrelson, what comes to mind is those are the actions of somebody who feels that they themselves owe the debt to this plant. As you have expressed feeling, you know, as long as I stay generous with cannabis, cannabis will be generous with me. You know, we started this story with cannabis saving your life with cannabis, as I said, putting food on the table for your family, everything that you went through by trying to honor that and by trying to share that with other people, your many good deeds that did not go unpunished also brought you into contact with people who felt that same way about this plant and so could put themselves in your shoes. If there's anything that underpins the success of this cannabis movement in changing not just uh, the hearts and minds of people, but changing the law, changing society, it is that we stuck together. That was the strength of our movement. And in, in, in essence, I think I don't want to give the government any uh, pointers in how to oppress people, but by going so hard, by creating such obviously unjust punishments for people, that actually became a huge motivating force for us to say, no, you know, if they're going to bust that person they're coming after all of us. That's absolutely right. There was a huge amount of camaraderie back then. And I think that a lot of us feel a real kinship with the plant because we know how much it has helped us. And people that don't have access to it, we see that that, that denial is ruining their life or at least causing them hardship. And even to this day, you know, I don't begrudge any of the cops, the jailers, the judges, the prosecutors. I hope they found cannabis. And I might sound like I'm a Christian saying, I hope they found Jesus. But I wouldn't be surprised if a majority of the cops and judges and prosecutors and jailers that have locked me up are now using cannabis in a legal way. And I'm grateful for that. And I hope that that helps them. You know, when I was sitting in prison for five years, I had a lot of time to think about what I wanted to do. And while I like The Emperor Wears No Clothes, 
and, you know, disseminating books, I get annoyed with how long it takes people to read them. Uh, so I was more interested in making documentaries. And when I got out of prison, myself and a group of friends from Canada made the first documentary called The Union, The Business Behind Getting High. And we did it right around the time where um, people started to be able to download movies. I was able to put together the, the cast. I had Joe Rogan, Tommy Chong, Dr. Lester Grinspoon, Dr. Todd McCurria, Norm Stampler of Seattle, who was the former police police chief who changed his mind about cannabis prohibition and helped form a law enforcement against prohibition, which was great. And that did really well for us. I wanted to make a bigger statement and I figured what would be a bigger splash than renting the Los Angeles Convention Center and putting on what I call the THC Expo. I had about 40 to 50,000 people show up on my first day on Saturday beyond my wildest expectations of being able to reach people. And there were people from all facets of life. It was absolutely so diverse and I loved it. And then I started working on the culture high with uh, my same friends that did the union. And in 2012, I was receiving the Cannabis Culture Award along with, of all people, Richard Branson. I asked him if he had seen our first documentary, The Union, and he said, yes, I thought it was brilliant. And I said, oh, good. Well, would you maybe be in our next documentary? Because we're working on one called The Culture High. And he said, maybe. And I said, maybe is better than no. <laughs> and then he said, yes. He let us film him in his uh, daughter's kitchen in London. And uh, we sent him a pre-release of the movie. You know, he loved it. And he launched it for us on October 1st, 2014, on his own regard on virgin.com. Then Netflix translated it into 15 languages and showed it in 70 countries for five years. At one point, they told us that the union had been viewed over 20 million times in its first year. I really had a high point in that because like, I'd hand somebody a book and six months later, they wouldn't even know what I was talking about. But you could sit grandma down in front of one of these documentaries for 120 minutes and she'd come away thinking marijuana prohibition was wrong. And that was exactly what I needed to do. Those were the accomplishments that kind of kept me going. And then when the federal hemp farm bill passed, it caused all parts of the plant with less than three tenths of a percent THC to become legal. And when I read it, I realized seeds are legal. So I immediately turned my nursery into a seed company and I started Authentic Genetics because, you know, 20 years ago, I could plant the seed of knowledge into your mind, but now I can put the seeds of <laughs> cannabis into your hand and you can go grow it yourself. And, uh, and, and now I have customers in all 50 states in over 23 countries. I just went over 10,000 customers and over 15,000 orders in the five years that I've been selling seeds now. And I feel like it's like my new activism and I'm really happy about it because all the old heads that were like Skunkman Sam, Mel Frank, Rob Clark, Seattle Greg, who created Northern Lights, had all been following my case and my life for like 25, 30 years. And they're all good friends of mine. So I was the first person that Mel Frank allowed to sell his seeds other than himself. He'd never sold his seeds, really only gave them away. Skunkman Sam just stayed with me for a couple of weeks. Him and his wife were here vacationing with me. He let me get Original Haze and Skunk One. And he's going to let me get Hindu Kush, California Orange, and a few others from him. Seattle Greg hooked me up with Northern Lights number 2, Northern Lights number 5, and 
the purest indica that he never sent to Neville because he didn't want Neville to be able to make the Northern Lights hybrids without him. It's like having the rainbow of cannabis. You have very different varieties, tastes, terpenes, cannabinoids, and we're not even done yet. And I feel like all of that bullshit I went through before was all so that I could do what I'm doing now, <laughs> which is just sell seeds to people and, and, and share seeds with people and let them have the ability to experience all this themselves, which has been the goal the whole time. Wow. What, uh, what a beautiful uh, place to be. I think the poetic justice of it all is, is amazing. Apropos. To- to consider yeah. um and i and i think it's a going to be a great moment in weed history every time you are able to uh share not just the seeds of knowledge but the seeds of the plant itself um this has been a beautiful conversation i you know we've known each other quite a long time i've been such an admirer of uh the work that you've put out and of course um what you've done alongside that personally but i just feel so much of this conversation i didn't know about you and the details of your story and um it's just such a beautiful melding of the political and the personal and the plant so thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing uh your great moments in weed history with all of us oh i appreciate it can i tell you one more short story which will make you find amusing uh yeah let me just let me just get lit up that's that is actually quite appropriate because that's where it all starts so i was nine years old and i would uh my mom babysat me by telling me to go sit in the living room and listen to her albums so i'd go in there and listen to her records with the with the headphones on uh big panasonic headphones with the volume and tone control and the curly cord and i'd smoke pot one of the albums that i like to listen to the most was an album by aldi miola and it was called land of the midnight sun and it started off with a song called The Wizard. There was no lyrics on the album. It's just straight. So I always would sit and listen to this stoned and fucking tripping out and like loving Aldi Miola's guitar playing. Fast forward to this year. And uh, these days I collect guitars, which is why I'm sitting here in front of all these guitars and I play. And I had the opportunity to go have dinner with Aldi Miola and, <laughs> and go to his house, have dinner with him and buy this guitar from him and uh which was made specifically for him <laughs> it literally says custom built for aldi miola on the back of it and tell him how profound it was for me to be able to finally come full circle and go from the kid listening to with headphones at his mother's living room you know really learning cannabis for the first time to being in his home basement studio with him smoking cannabis with him for the first time because he doesn't smoke cannabis but now he has arthritis and now he's open to cannabis and when we met and I started telling him about my history he was like I'll smoke cannabis with you when you come to dinner and he did and we sat up till three in the morning you know giggling and talking and having a great time and then I left with this guitar that's his signature on it and it's been a real trip to go through life because cannabis, I feel, has been my guide. All of it seems like almost a fairy tale. Well, happily ever after uh, <laughs> to you exactly. and to everyone listening. And uh, thank you for uh, getting high on history with us, everyone. We will see you next Weedness Day for another great
moment in weed history. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.